everybody. Welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. This is episode 22, and this is a mailbag episode. But first, I'm going to talk a little bit about some industry updates, some changes to some export legislation or regulation, and we're going to jump straight into your questions. I've got some about uh, buying veneer. I've got some questions about mold, uh, fluorescence. That one should be fun. And we're going to talk a little bit about sapwood and some lolly pine. So lots of stuff to talk about. I say, let's get right into it. First things first, I do want to say thank you to my new patrons, Daniel and Steven, who sponsored the show this week. Thank you guys very, very much. I uh, always am tickled pink when people enjoy the show and they write in and they tell me to keep it going. And when they take that next step and they actually put the money where their mouth is, I do appreciate that. If you do want to support the show, go to patreon.com slash lumber update. And there's all kinds of fun little tiers that you can support over there. So again, thank you everybody for doing that. Uh, Very, very much much appreciated. So before I dive into some of the industry updates, I was actually uh, fielding some questions from the FSC episode last time, as well as just re-listening to it while I was editing it. And it occurred to me, there's just so much more that can be said about it. And maybe sometime in the future, I'll do maybe a part two, not so much part two FSC, but part two about certification and verification schemas. But there was one kind of amendment, I guess I want to say. I do want to um, go further on one particular point about FSC because I don't think I made that clear. I talked a lot about the credit system and how it's credits uh, credits created and credits used and how that can, you know, leave a lot of interpretation open. The point that I should make is you can get an FSC certification as a managed forest uh, provider, somebody who's actually cutting down trees and making lumber. But then there's also the FSC certification for chain of custody. And that's all the other people in the supply chain, the people who aren't actually cutting down trees, but are dealing in lumber. And in order to be a certified FSC uh, COC Um, holder, chain of custody holder, you do have to show a repeatable process that shows how you manage your inventory. And that includes the management of those credits. So you may purchase X number of credits that um, for that particular transaction are tied to some, say, you know, mahogany. Well, your uh, FSC audit and the process you go through to get certified does have to show that you have a way of actually keeping track of those credits, aka that mahogany lumber, as it flows through your system. So it's not, you know, total Wild West. It's just, you know, smoke and mirrors. Credits can be applied to anything. It is possible and it is an actual legal legitimate way within the FSC regulations to detach credits from a particular pack of lumber because again, it's really the credits that they're most interested in, but it requires a bunch of different steps in order to do that. So I don't want to give the impression that it's total smoke and mirrors. To be a chain of custody certified body by FSC, you have to have a process in place and that process is audited every single year. Your certification is good for five years, but you do get checked every single year and you have to make sure you're maintaining all this stuff. So there's a lot more to that, um, you know, and, and we, as I say, could go on and on and on, but I felt that I left that kind of unsaid and it made it seem like it was a lot, uh, a lot less structured than it really was. So do keep that in mind. Chain of custody bodies do have to be able to show that and have to have actual chain of custody tracking, um, supply chain management in their systems. 
Anyway, but this does bring me to a question that Mike actually left a, a comment on the Lumber Update website, lumberupdate.com. And Mike says, so what is the protocol slash etiquette on asking these questions? He's referring to, I'm always telling you guys, when you go and you buy lumber, ask questions about where it came from, where it was sourced, ask questions of your supplier. So again, he says, what's what's the etiquette for asking these questions? If I go into a place that sells wood and there's a, a, a lift of walnut shorts or African mahogany for sale by the board foot, I can't just say, let me see your paper trail, yo. <laughs> Can I? I mean, if it's a ton of paperwork to trace this stuff, they aren't going to want to pull it up for every guy who needs 18 board feet for a side table, right? And will they even have it? Or will it be at the, quote, head office or something? And this is a good question, Mike. Um, and no, <laughs> you don't want to go in and immediately say, let me see your paper trail, yo. I mean, you certainly, uh, <laughs> I, I suppose... <laughs> certain places maybe you could <laughs> but you might not be asked back it's one of those things that immediately is going to put somebody on offensive and they're going to say who are you you know let me see your id are you from fish and wildlife what we need to do is you have to kind of ease into asking questions the key to understand and the first question that you can ask is especially if you're talking not not especially specifically if you're looking at an exotic species exotic north america or wherever you are in the world if you are on the european continent exotic is any species that doesn't grow natively on the european continent um, the first question you ask when you're talking about an exotic is, did you import this exotic directly or did you buy it from someone else already in, in country or within the European Union or within the, one of the, you know, the, the, the government regionality? <laughs> I'm trying to cover the entire world and I'm North American centric in my knowledge. I apologize. So, you know, where, where did you do? Did you import this directly or did you buy it from somebody else already in the country? And if the question is, oh, no, we bought it from a guy over in New Hampshire, then really that person you're buying from is not going to have um, all of that paperwork. That paperwork is taken care of by the importer of record. The person who actually had to bring that into the country, they're the ones that that certify everything is above board. And as a, a lumber seller who is buying from an importer of record, they are saying, okay, are, is this all legitimate? Do you have your paperwork? Things like that. And the, the next person downstream is, is checking the paperwork, but they don't need to have that particular paperwork. And they probably don't know much more than I bought it from XYZ company who was the importer of record. So in, in your travels, if you go to you know, Joe's Lumberyard, and you're looking at that African mahogany and you say, okay, Joe, did you buy this directly from overseas or from someone already in country? He says, no, I bought it from somebody in country, you know, and you, you know, if, if it's, if it's a good conversation, if he's immediately defensive, you might want to, you know, back away a little bit, but you can kind of read the room, read the body language, say, oh, that's interesting. Can you tell me who the importer of record was? I'm, you know, I'm just curious. And especially if you're a hobbyist and you are in that, you know, I'm buying 18 board feet, you don't want to be kind of a jerk about it, but you can be someone who's interested someone as a consumer of lumber i'm really curious about the supply chain you know can you tell me who the importer was and you can do your own research on that importer and you could actually even contact that importer now there is not a single document, as I've said before. So contacting that importer of record, you might get a bit of a runaround because, again, it, this is going to be you're they're going to be focused on a specific order a specific container, things like that. And if you're trying to track something down that maybe Joe's Lumberyard bought six months ago, that might be a little bit more difficult. 
But the fact that Joe bought it from that import of record and that import of record is going to have that documentation, it's made it through the port. You can feel pretty safe that that, that material, it's legit. It's already been through all the checks and balances in order to get to the point where it was for sale to Joe's Lumberyard. Now, if it's a domestic species, there's really a lot less regulation here um, other than the fact that there are certain concessions where trees can be cut and there are certain practices, harvestry practices that should be followed for healthy, sustainable forestry. So what you can do again, you're at Joe's lumber yard and you're looking at that walnut and say, Joe, where'd you get this walnut? You know, regionally, where did, where does this walnut come from? That's a very innocuous question that's not going to put anybody on their guard. And Joe's, well, we got it from the Ohio river Valley. Oh, okay. Um, do you know who cut it down? Do you know specifically what concession it was coming from? I'm really curious to see where this wood is coming from. Again, it's all about tone. It's not, you know, is this legal? It's, I'm curious about the supply chain. I'm curious to figure, to learn more about the wood that I'm using. And generally they'll tell you, you know, I bought it from, uh, again, company A who has a sawmill out there. And it can be a process of reaching out to that sawmill and, and looking at their harvestry practices. Or here's going back to FSC, you can look at them and say, are they an FSC um, managed forest certified body? And if so, then yes, they've been checked up on. They have been verified that they're doing this right. More than likely, they're going to have some other certifications that you can look at. So it can be just a question if you're at the retailer level, just a question of where did this lumber come from, like regionally, if it's domestic or, you know, if you don't know, if you're looking at an exotic species, it can be really easy to say, you know, where does snake wood come from? Um, oh, well, that comes from Suriname. Really? Okay. How'd you get that? You know, I mean, and you can have a conversation that isn't necessarily going to put someone on their guard. So it, it's, it's more of a series of questions. If you immediately say, let me see documentation, you're probably going to find that a lot of people don't know what you're talking about, depending upon the level at which you're buying. If you are talking to an importer of record, then yes, they will probably have it. But a lot of that documentation can also have some intellectual property on it. Suppliers are not, while not guarded secrets, it's kind of like, you know, your favorite fishing hole. You don't necessarily tell everybody where you got caught that fish, nor do you necessarily tell everybody where you uh, are buying some of your material because you don't necessarily want other people to go direct to your suppliers. That information is documented, but people can also be a little bit guarded about giving that information up unless you're coming to them with a U.S. Fish and Wildlife badge saying, I need, you know, to check your, do a Lacey audit on you. So it, it it's a little bit different, um, but it can you can have these conversations just by starting small, asking where it came from or where it was bought, um, how you procured it and approach it from the curious perspective. I'm a woodworker. I love to know the story. I love when I build this side table to be able to tell the story of where the tree came from and be able to have more idea about that chain of custody. And as a member of the, the human race and a a resident of planet Earth, I'm concerned. I want to make sure that this stuff is legitimate. And I think you can have a pretty decent conversation there. Um, in the end, Mike, just start the conversation. You may find that that local lumberyard is completely unhelpful. And, you know, that might be the first step in determining, is this a lumberyard I want to shop at? So moving on, um, some industry news. I got uh, an email 
from Ray that I thought was particularly funny. He uh, uh, told me that there's a terrorist group that's actually banning lumber. So this announcement comes from the terrorist group Al-Shabaab. They are a Somali-based militant Islamist group which has links to Al-Qaeda, but they've long had an interest in environmental issues. So they made an announcement on Radio Andalus, which is operated by Al-Shabaab, and basically their leader said, um, we are banning single-use plastic bags because it's posed a serious threat by those plastic bags to both humans and livestock. And pollution caused by plastic was damaging to the environment. And then like, right as he was signing off, it was kind of like, oh, and by the way, we're banning the logging of rare trees. No details about which trees. Moreover, they, when pressed, had no details about how they plan to enforce these bans. Just ban on single-use plastic and you can't log these rare trees. <laughs> I guess maybe they plan to follow up later and say, these are the trees. But um, hey, I, I suppose you know if, if lawyers brandishing clipboards and pens don't stop people from illegal logging, maybe guys with AK-47s might help. I, I don't know. It's just kind of interesting to see a terrorist group jumping, throwing their hat into the ring here. We've heard of eco-terrorism, so... Um, I guess this is really taking that literally. So anyway, I do uh, I appreciate the uh, industry update there, Ray. It's very interesting. Now, the biggest news in probably the the world right now is uh, Ibama. That is the um, forestry service in Brazil kind of slipped a new regulation under the radar. It was like, you know, they posted on the website, but, you know, didn't tell anybody. It's kind of like if I were to post, like go in and edit a previous episode on the Lumber Update blog post, how many people would actually notice that? Unless I specifically went out and said, I made an edit to this particular post and linked to it and all that stuff. They just updated the website and did nothing else. But (laughs) they are requiring a new document for any export of material. And this is, uh, let's see, the, the document, it's Portuguese, the Authoracio para Exportacio, basically an export document. This document is a single document that if you have this attached, you basically have thumbs up to export the material. The idea is, is that you are applying for that document by, to um, from IBAMA, and you're providing all the documentation and all the chain of custody information that you've normally compiled. The uh, government is then saying, okay, this passes, you know, chunk rubber stamp, here's your export document and you're good to go. So no longer do any of the exporters have to provide any of that chain of custody, they just provide this single document. That's a little alarming (laughs) to me that a single document now is not all you need and no one's checking the other stuff. Now, again, supposedly the government is checking this stuff, but as far as U.S. Fish and Wildlife, as far as Obama's concerned, if you have that single document, you're good to go. Well, dang. <laughs> so now there's only one person to bribe. Oh, wait, I didn't just say that out loud, did I? Yeah, it's, I mean, that's what people are saying at this point is while there's been known to be corruption within Obama, now you're making just a single document all it's needed. So I don't know. I'm not exactly sure what's behind this. Um, it's particularly interesting. Needless to say, the fact that it wasn't announced or really talked about, suddenly shipments started getting flagged and held all over the place. So I guess the good news is, is that people are actually looking for that document and enforcing it when they don't find that document. 
But the the lumber trade was just like, wait, what now? Wait, when did this happen? Like nobody had any idea that this was required. And immediately people started scrambling to try to get this document. And what was interesting is, frankly, I don't want to say easy, but just how quickly documents were procured by shipments that were like waiting at the port. There were even a few that were able to get retroactively applied to material that was already on the water, you know, just by saying, oh, that just shipped out two days ago. Here's all the documentation. Let me have that document and like (laughs) printing off the document. And I guess faxing it to the ship captain. I don't know. But it was kind of interesting how just announcing this under the radar suddenly threw the entire export into turmoil. So I'm really curious to see how this plays out because right now I know my bosses, a lot of the folks at um, the International Wood Products Association are scrambling and trying to figure out how this is going to work because we are all poking hole after hole in this idea and very, very concerned that this could cause a lot more problems. So in the meantime, we're just going to see how that plays out. But that was some pretty big news coming out of specifically Brazil, but generally when Obama does something, a lot of the other South American countries start to follow. So, wow, I'll be curious to see how that plays. In other news, uh, China has been uh, trying to get a little bit more uh, environmental. The um, the Chinese Congress actually adopted several amendments to the national forest law that, uh, among a bunch of provisions, it bans the buying, processing, or transporting of illegally sourced timber. So the, the purpose is to better protect Chinese forests and facilitate green development. So this is actually the first time that China has done this. And, you know, there's all kinds of stuff that has to happen. You can only imagine the number of pages this type of amendment is. It takes effect on July 1st of this year. So I know that um, several of my contacts at IWPA, again, that's International Wood Products Association, they're kind of monitoring the implementation and what it's actually going to mean. Um, What I can't tell at this point is if it's specifically uh, protecting just Chinese forests, because the biggest issue that the world has had with China is not necessarily the logging of their forests, but the buying of illegal timber from other countries and bringing it into China and milling it and turning it into furniture. I've talked about that on the show before, so I'd be curious to see how that plays into things. So stay tuned, but um, China's on the move, trying uh, trying, trying to make some green movements here. So, okay, uh, let's let's jump into emails now. Um, I got an email from Paul who said, uh, I was curious about veneer. He said, can you recommend a veneer supplier that shows their inventory online so when you make a purchase, that's what you're going to get. Uh, That's what you're going to get. Um, uh, Paul, this is an easy answer. Um, uh, uh, um, Veneersupplies.com. Uh, If you're familiar with Joe Woodworker or JoeWoodworker.com, Joe has been like the go-to source for woodworkers for all things veneer, vacuum bags, vacuum pumps, veneer glue, all that stuff. And because it's because he also stocks a hell of a lot of veneer and you can actually see images of the veneer. Now, the one thing I will say is he may have, um, you know, say a walnut burl veneer and he's got 20 sheets of that veneer. You're going to see a picture of the top sheet, but it is a sequence matched flitch. So, um, you know, that the sheets underneath that are going to look the same, if not slightly different as you move through the thickness of the log, but you are actually buying what is pictured there and, and, uh, Joe's very good about showing all that. I feel like he's got 
I don't know, thousands and thousands of species and Lord knows how many square feet of veneer. So veneersupplies.com is definitely the place to go. I've shot from him a lot in the past. Another company you can look at is Formwood, um, uh, F as in Frank, O-R-M-W-O-O-D. Formwood does a lot of custom laid up plywood panels. So if you're actually looking to have a, a panel made, like a four by eight panel made, they are somebody you can look into, but you also can buy veneer from them. Now they're not gonna be the guys that are gonna provide a lot of the crazy burls and things like that, but if you're just looking for you know, regular species of woods, or specifically if you're looking for like an all rift, uh, rift cut veneer or an all quarter veneer and cherry or something like that, they are a source that you can look at. I don't believe they have minimum quantity orders because I've ordered just a couple of sheets of veneer from them in the past, but uh, I also haven't checked in a while, but definitely check out Formwood as well. So John has been following along recently about uh, talk about stacking and stickering and airflow and bugs and all that stuff. And he wrote in because he was concerned about mold. He says, do you need to be concerned with mold on lumber stacked outdoors? And if so, what's the best option to remove the mold? I have 100 board feet of six quarter walnut stickered under a loose tarp in my yard in Southern California. It was dead stacked for six months. And then I noticed small amounts of mold as I was restacking with stickers. So here's the thing, John, stickering is a very good idea to provide the airflow, but that's actually not going to do much from a mold perspective. Stickering doesn't really solve that because it's the sugars that are in the wood that are actually providing kind of the the base for the mold to grow upon. That's what's actually attracting it in the first place. So even if it's dead stacked or stickered, uh, in some ways, actually, the stickering may expose more of that sugar and you may get more mold. The thing is, the mold is not really an issue. Now, if you were to let that mold grow for a couple of decades, well, maybe not that long, but you know, if you left it completely unchecked for, for a year or so, it might start to rot the wood, but might very, very, I'm, I'm, I'm suspect that it might rot the wood inside a year. Um, probably much, much longer than that. Obviously, it's going to depend upon the species, how soft the density of that species is, how much sugar is in that wood. Like, was that tree felled in the summer or the spring when the sap was rising, or was it felled in the winter when there was no sap in there, therefore much, much lower sugar content, which is why generally trees are felled in the winter because the sap is not rising and you're going to have a lot less of that stuff in there. But in the end, uh, mold is going to show up pretty quickly on a lot of lumbers that are highly resinous in content. Removing is not a big deal, though. Take um, some regular old uh, Clorox bleach and put it in a solution, maybe you know one to four bleach to, to water. I suppose you could go as high as 50%, and put it in a spray bottle and spray it on the wood and just use a like a you know not necessarily a stiff bristle brush, but just like a cleaning brush, and the stuff will come right off. The other thing is, is it is truly surface mold. So if you've got a really good filter on your dust collector, just go ahead and run it through the planer um, and it's gonna take that off. You know, in hindsight, I probably wouldn't recommend that. (laughs) You might be spreading mold spores, like atomizing them and spreading around. Don't do that. Go ahead and scrape the mold off, uh, scrub the mold off, use a little bit of Clorox bleach, and you'll be just fine. Um, And in a dilute solution of Clorox, that's not gonna cause any problems to the wood, and you're gonna end up going back and planing away 
um, the light amount of bleach that was on the wood anyway. So it, it's not something to ignore. Don't leave it there for years and years and years because yes, it will eventually start to rot the wood, but it happens all the time. Um, if lumber sits for a while, you don't really see it a lot in lumber yards because the turn rate is a lot higher there. But in private collections, it's very common to see um, a little bit of mold sticking up, green mold, gray mold, black mold, all kinds of it. Just um, scrub it off before you put the boards to use and check on it You know, every six months or so. And if necessary, um, you can take it off then um, or just pay attention to it. It's not gonna be a big deal. So this one's interesting. Adam wrote in um, about some black locusts. He says, I'm a call maker and I've been selling uh, calls as honey locust as this is what I bought from my lumber guy. And I just assumed he was correct. He's a good guy, respectable, but um, I was showing my calls to a fellow call maker and he says, this is not honey locust, it's actually black locust. And I was like, well, how can you tell? So he whips out a black light kills the lights and the call lights up like it's got radiation in it. I was blown away. He says black locust is the only wood that glows under a black light or so he's been told. Can you tell me anything about this or how to distinguish between the two woods? So first thing, Adam, uh, black locust is not the only wood that lights up or the, the scientific term is fluoresces under a black light. There are actually quite a few species that do this. And in fact, if you look up, um, if you Google wood fluorescence, you will find an article on the wood database that lists like, gosh, 50 or 60 species that fluoresce. But it also will tell you the colors that they fluoresce. Some of them are orange, some of them are green. And actually, uh, I was just browsing through that list as well. And um, they show that both honey locust and black locust fluoresce. I did a little bit more digging and yes, they do both fluoresce. So I don't know. I mean, now there's there's varying levels. Black locust definitely fluoresces a lot brighter than the honey locust. So I don't know that that's necessarily the the only way to tell them apart. The big way to tell black locust and honey locust apart, it's very similar to red oak and white oak. The black locust, the pores are really big, but they're also filled with a crystalline substance called tylose. Honey locust does not have the pores filled with tylose, so it's closer to red oak. Um, you know, you can take red oak and, and stick it a little bit in the water and blow on the other end and you make bubbles like blowing through a straw, whereas white oak won't do that because those pores are you know, crammed full of that crystalline substance. I, I call it caulk because that's why white oak makes a really good exterior species because the pores are caulked up and the red oak is not that great of a, an exterior species because the pores are wide open. Likewise, black locust is a fantastic exterior wood species. Moreover, black locust is great for ground contact instances like making fence posts that you can actually bury the wood in the ground and the wood is not going to rot. Black locust is phenomenal for that and most of the black Black locust that's in production today is being shaped into fence posts for that specific reason. Honey locust does not have those pores filled with the tylose, so it's not the best exterior wood in that particular instance. It's still pretty good when you compare it to some other domestic species. That would be the first way to tell. Um, just click on the black light for fun, you know, a cool party trick. But uh, fluorescence really comes down to the light reacting to minerals in the wood. And a lot of that heavy, heavy, heavy tylose content in black locust is what causes it to fluoresce so 
violently, I guess would be the word for it. And when you look at a lot of the, especially some of the exotic woods that show up on that fluorescence list, it's the resins, what we would call the extractives that have uh, heavy mineral contents that cause them to fluoresce. So yeah, it's just one of those fun little nature tricks. Throw throw your wood under a black light and see what happens. And you may find there's a certain amount of fluorescence in, in most of the woods that you see. Nine times out of 10 though, Take a species like teak that is very, very high in silica, and what you'll find is not so much the the mineral itself fluorescing, but the the whitish color that's fluorescing um, under the black light. So you can actually see the level of silica in the wood by putting it under a black light. Fun party trick. So now I've got a, a voicemail here from James that I want to play. Hi, Shannon. This is Jerry. I live in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Wanted to thank you for your podcast. I look forward to them each and every week or two weeks. Disappointed they're not every week. My question is on the usefulness of the Loplolly pine. I saw a recent uh, episode on Growing a Greener World where they talk about establishing bird sanctuaries. And I wanted to plant trees and shrubbery to support the bird habitat in our neighborhood. But I have six Loplolly pines in an area that I would like to plant them this uh, bird sanctuary. The trees are over 30 years old, and my question is, are these trees useful for furniture projects, um, maybe um, using them for interior doors in my home? I have access to a gentleman who mills lumber and can stack it on my property, and I can wait it out and let it dry. I just didn't know if the Loplolly pine was a, a good timber wood or furniture wood. Thank you. Okay, so that wasn't James, that was Jerry. I don't know what I was thinking. Sorry, Jerry, um, but you're gonna be known as James from now on. I apologize, we'll, I'll send you the documentation for you to fill out later. So the Loblolly pine is incredibly common. Uh, I wanna say it's it's certainly top five, if not top three most populous species in North America. A lot of people refer to it as Southern yellow pine, or um, it can be grouped into the Southern yellow pines. Um, a lot of people will group into white pines and Southern yellow pines. More appropriately, it's grouped as a hard pine as compared to a soft pine. The Loblolly pine, I think it's Janka hardness is a good three to 400 pounds per square inch harder than something like uh, a, a white, um, white pine, Northeastern white pine or hemlock or um, one of those whiter pine groups that you find. So uh, as a species, heck yeah, it's a good wood. Um, the, um, well, the, the botanical is Pinus taeda, and it is a little bit different from longleaf heart pine, which a lot of people, longleaf pine is what a lot of people really consider to be southern yellow pine. A little bit denser growth ring, um, a little bit more resinous and a little bit harder. Loblolly pine is not quite as dense. The growth rings are spread out a little bit more. It grows a lot faster and um, it usually grows in lowland swamps, which is actually where the loblolly term came from. So it has wider growth rings just because of its incredibly fast growth rate. But because it's growing in that very nutrient-rich environment, it is very resinous and therefore it's a quite a bit denser and therefore harder than like your northeastern white pines and your hemlocks and things like that. So you're going to get that slight yellowish cast to it like you would find in southern yellow pine and you're going to get the um, distinct striations from early to late wood like the darker red brown and the late wood 
and the yellowish lighter areas in the early wood. But that also does create um, a fair amount of hardness differential. If you ever try to run um, a hand plane across the growth rings in southern yellow pine, you know, if your hand plane's not sharp, you're going to get it to vibrate because of the dramatic hardness differences. Same thing with the ingrain can be a real bear to plane that way but absolutely gorgeous and people have been making furniture out of this stuff for centuries so if you've got several species or several trees rather and you already have access to a guy who can mill it into lumber i say do it man um you're gonna love working with that stuff it's a beautiful wood and um yeah it is is most definitely something that's suitable for furniture and if you want to make doors and things from it if you've got the ability um if you can work with a guy to saw it and have things sawn into quartered blanks so that you're going to have more stability for your interior doors go for it you're gonna have a lot of fun with that and um, if you really want to have fun google loblolly and the origin of its name and you might want to go make some uh, oatmeal later on so finally, I have a question from Nate here on specifically on walnut sapwood, but I do want to take the time to talk about sapwood in general. He says, when we, when we talk about walnut, we usually say that high-grade walnut has minimal or no sapwood. Understanding the color difference is often eliminated by steaming, is there any issue with using walnut sapwood in building? I have some air-dried walnut that I think has great color variants with the sapwood and would make a very interesting tabletop, but I don't want to use the sapwood if it's going to cause structural issues. So here's the thing. First of all, the difference between heartwood and sapwood. Sapwood is the living part of the tree. That is, fittingly enough, where the sap flows. The tree pulls its nutrients and water and everything from the ground through the sapwood layer. The sapwood then processes it, eats it (laughs) in order to grow, and the waste material is um, processed via the medullary rays. Again, think of the medullary rays as the spokes on a wheel. The waste material is then transported into the center of the tree, the heartwood, via the medullary rays. So that's why the heartwood is darker, because all the extractives and the resins and all the, frankly, tree poop, the waste products um, from the sapwood layer have been deposited into the heartwood, and you get that darker color, but also much denser and harder. But here's the thing. When a tree is felled, uh, yes, the sapwood may not be very structural because it's going to move a lot more than the heartwood. It's just less dense. There's also a lot more moisture in that sapwood layer. Even if the tree is felled in winter and the sap isn't rising, there is a lot more, significantly more moisture in the sapwood. But once that board has been dried, especially, or I should say specifically, kiln dried, air dried is not going to get you down to six to eight percent unless you're air drying it in like the Arizona desert. And even then, the slower drop in that is not going to harden the cell walls and set the sap like you might find from a kiln. A lot of kilns not only will dry to 6 to 8%, but more resinous species, like loblolly pine, by the way, um, or Spanish cedar or something like that, the kiln will actually go up higher than you normally would. Now, it's a slow climb, and it's held at a higher temperature in order to set the sap. And what that does is it dramatically hardens the sapwood. Now, the sapwood is still going to have a hardness differential 
Um, it's going to be a little bit softer than the heartwood, but it's really not so dramatic. And in the terms of what we're talking about or what you're talking about, Nate, when it comes to using a tabletop, it's really not significant enough to be concerned. Just look around and you're going to find furniture maker to furniture maker who is actually capitalizing on the color difference from heartwood to sapwood. Sapwood is not a bomb. It's not inherently instable and it's not going to um, cause problems. Would I necessarily rely on it for structural purposes? You know, am I going to build a bridge out of sapwood? Well, that just doesn't make sense. Um, <laughs> it's just not practical. So uh, I suppose not. But in terms of furniture making, in really most applications, if that wood has been kiln dried, you're not going to find that much of a difference between heart and sapwood and, 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 and hardness and, and stability. If you're really concerned about it um, and there is going to be a little bit more movement in the sapwood, just build for that. Take that into account when you build and you'll be just fine. Um, in the end, though, I will say that the, um, the minimization of color difference due to steaming and walnut, I don't buy it. <laughs> I really don't buy it. I can still see that it's sapwood clear as day. It kind of maybe blurs the line. Instead of it being a hard line from heartwood to sapwood, it's just kind of like somebody in Photoshop turned up the feather a little bit and it just blurs the line. But no, it's still clearly sapwood to me. I, I don't get it. I'm actually much prefer unsteamed walnut because the natural colors in walnut to me are so much prettier than that kind of boring, bleached out, steamed look of, of steamed walnut. But what are you going to do? So yeah, don't be afraid of sapwood, folks. It's not going to kill you. Um, it's not going to cause your projects to explode. Just keep in mind that if it's freshly cut from a tree, that's going to be a place where the bugs are going to want to go after. There's going to be a heck of a lot more moisture there. So you do want to dry it. And if you can't dry it, cut it off um, because it's, it's bad news until it's dried. So that's it for this week, folks. I, I do want to thank everybody for writing in. I've, as usual, got more emails than I can possibly get to in an episode. But again, if you have questions, um, you want to send in a voice message, um, by all means, do that. You can record your voice memos and send them to lumberupdate at gmail.com. You can send your questions to lumberupdate at gmail.com or go to lumberupdate.com and there's a form right there that you can submit your questions to. Um, always appreciate it. Thanks for listening, everybody, and go buy some lumber.